Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is The Art of Awesome, episode number 34. Getting to the point where if you don't rise to the challenge, then the consequences are, well, potentially massive. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Welcome to The Art of Awesome. My name is Nick Troutman, and I'm a professional athlete, entrepreneur, family man, and adventure seeker. Each week, we dive deep into uncovering the difference between the average and the awesome. We talk with thought leaders, business moguls, health and fitness professionals, and world-class athletes as we look for the secret sauce to producing awesome results in everyday life. Thanks for spending some time with me today, and let's get to it. Welcome back, everyone, to The Art of Awesome. I am your host, Nick Troutman, and this is the show where we look for those golden nuggets and secret sauce to success. Today, we have another terrific episode with a really good friend of mine and Scotsman, Bruce Joliffe. Bruce has been studying the flow state and actually got his master's um, in studying the flow state, which is something that we go deep into on this episode, as well as we talk about just the progression of sport, where the upper echelon and limits could be, and we talk about the difference between the clutch state and the choke state, and kind of how we transfer from choking in competition into a clutch performance or our peak performance uh, when competing. Anyway, this was just a really fun episode for me as I have been interested in the flow state for many years and how we can tap into that peak performance in competition as well as our everyday life. So I'm super stoked to share this with you guys. And before we jump right into it, I just want to give you guys a heads up that Bruce uh, is a Scotsman and therefore has a pretty strong Scottish accent. So just be warned, you might hear the accent uh, throughout the episode. I'm pretty sure it's going to be obvious. Anyway, let's go ahead and jump right into it with Bruce Joliffe. First off, Bruce, thank you so very much for joining me. It is always a fun time uh, when I get to talk with you. Uh, you and I met in kayaking years ago, I think in Spain, and there's a whole backstory to that that we don't need to go too deep into. No, no, but, no at all. <laughs> well, that was a good time. Um, though in the more recent years, you and I have actually had several different conversations and and gone pretty deep into the concept of of flow and clutch states, uh, which I find extremely um, interesting and definitely have been kind of researching on my own. Um, but you've actually done, you know, real research onto it, getting your, um, uh, your master's if, if I'm correct on that. Yeah. That's and, great. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and now you're also uh, a consultant and a coach, um, for different, you know, definitely the U S or the, the British, um, national freestyle team, if I'm correct. And then yeah, GB freestyle team. Yeah, and some some other. I think you were saying earlier on, maybe with the fire department and stuff like that too. So yeah, if you can just give us a, a brief history of kind of uh, a little bit about how you kind of got to to where you are right now. Oh, that's that's quite different. That's a whole lifetime, that one, Nick. Um, so I mean, I've been living a double life for must be fifteen plus years. Um, basically, working on on one side as a scientist. Um, well, it's actually a double life ever since I got into kayaking. You know yourself what it's like. You know, kayaking basically takes takes hold in your life, so we all live it in our different ways. Um, so I've been living um, 
this double life where kayaking is a very, very, very big part of it for ever, but professionally for at least 15 years um, or more. And in, within that, sort of, I have this job where I work for the, the fire brigade, um, so the UK fire services, but I do a whole lot of operational work for the London fire brigade in England. Um, and that involves me working as a scientific advisor for them. So on this one side, I, I sort of, I'm a professional scientist, and on this other side, I'm a kayaker who also has managed to support the double life by basically getting into coaching as I've got older and I coach recreational kayaking. So that, that covers everything from freestyle and white waters through to even sea kayaking, which I was doing last week up in the north coast of Scotland. Um, but I've also been really lucky that for the last five years, I've been working with the GB freestyle team um, and that's working coaching at the world championships. So um, where I see you guys, um, you know, every couple of years when they're going on and, and, and every other year in between that, there'll be the European Championships. So we get to go and like have a little tour and meet up in different places in the world and share fantastic kind of events, which we all know there's the pressure becomes a part of. Um, and that, that, that's great because that's part of the conversation that I guess we'll end up having with, you know, what's flow, what's clutch and, and how the performance states work. So that's a little bit of the history of how I suppose I got here. There's been a whole lifetime of experience building towards them. But yeah, it's, um, it's, it's almost like every new event teaches you something and then you go away and you have to, especially as a coach anyway, you have to go and work out what was that thing or what, what that stuff that occurred. And so you go away and you read, but then you, you sort of try and assimilate the information you've read and then you come back at it another time and it just kind of grows and snowballs and it's like, I guess as coaches, um, where athletes go off and try and train and get better before the, the next competition, then as coaches, we go off and we try and work out what happened to the last one and then get better and help other people get better before the next competition. So the cycle never stops. Um, and that's, I think, I guess, how we get to this point we're at just now. That's that's amazing. So for me, my big interest with with kind of flow and uh, clutch states and just peak performance in general um, really kind of started just through my athletics. I would either, I've said it many times before, but I like to say I either win or I learn and I've been learning a lot. (laughs) I definitely don't win all the time. Um, But within that learning, I tried to figure out, you know, how I can better myself and how I can better my performance and how I can better my mental state. And so in, in all of that, I kind of, you know, stumbled upon this whole flow state and clutch states and all that kind of stuff. How did you, um, you know, like what, where did you get interested in the flow state and clutch state and peak performance? And was it through your athletics as well? Or was it something different? Or how did, how did you kind of stumble upon this all? Um, well, I guess it's one of these things that we, in some ways we've probably all been aware of through reading about them for a long time. Um, the flow state, for example, um, or you know, to think about Mihai Csikszentmihalyi's um, concept of flow and you know, fl- flow in everyday life and in performance, um, his, his work has been so um, well known at the forefront of of the the studies of of performance psychology. I guess um, that it beca- it's been accepted as a norm in a way. Um, even when you start to drill into it and read about it, you realize that actually achieving this um, in performance of some sorts is 
it, it's not even definitely possible. It, it, it definitely happens. It happens um, more regularly for some people than others. Um, but when you start to drill into the, the real studies looking at it in competition type performance, then actually it becomes a bit more of an elusive beast in truth. And I guess one of the big things about it is what we're looking at here is we're looking at people's subjective experience and that obviously is individual and therefore um, the understanding of it could be different for everyone. Um, and it might be that some people are more disposed to experiencing flow than others, for example, which means that some athletes would be more expo uh, disposed to experiencing flow as a performance state than others. And then it also means that for some athletes, it might happen in competition relatively regularly. And for others, it might almost never happen. Um, but I guess we then have to start thinking about um, well, why is that? And why does Mihai, Cheek Sent Mihai's understanding or, or, or definition of flow then like vary across different situations in different sports? And the more you drill into it, the more you realize that, that, that I guess because we're dealing with an imperfect um, scientific understanding because it is so subjective, then we we do really have to start to drill into well, what's particular about our sport, and then you know what's particular about our sport in a recreational sense versus a competitive sense, and then to try and get understanding of of how it occurs for people. So that's really a background of why it. it it started to take my interest because there's a really good body of work out there. But then when you actually look at our sport um, or the different branches of our sport. And when you're saying our sport, you're talking about kayaking to clarify. Oh yeah, right? totally. totally. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. I mean, yeah, so freestyle, white water, even sea kayaking, you know, and when you start looking at all these different kind of places where flow as a subjective human experience could occur, um, then we do start to see very different, situations um now i guess this this podcast nick just ask you a quick question this yep. is for more than just this, this is for this is for more than just kayakers this is for people who take an interest in the in across 100 yep. percent. yeah we we try to talk about um essentially the search for success in in whatever aspect of life that you're trying to succeed in and it could be in business could be in athletics it could be in you know relationships or just um you know the journey of life. Uh, and yeah. we, we could go deep into that whole aspect of it too. But I mean, just an, as another, as another thing, just before we go too deep into the whole flow, clutch, peak performance, high performance, all that stuff. Can you explain, cause we have, we've had this conversation several times before, but can you explain to someone uh, that might not understand what flow is? And so first explain what the flow state is that we're talking about. And then also maybe explain the difference between the flow state and the clutch state that you've done a lot of your research on? So I think this is probably the point where we have to take a step away from looking at the, the, the dictionary definitions, if you like, or the academic definitions and try and maybe paint a picture or, or describe it in a way which um, is more universally acceptable. So we'll use a metaphor, a story. So imagine you're learning to drive we can all remember learning to drive unless we haven't actually yet learned to drive but then we can maybe compare this to riding a bike or something but if you remember when you're learning to drive the first time you get behind the wheel of a car however old you are um at that point in time you usually end up on a nice bit of very quiet straight road and um you know you make big movements on the steering wheel and you don't know how, how 
well, to take a European example, if you're, you're using what you guys would call a stick or manual, you know, it's sort of, you can't work the clutch and the gears and, and the engine jumps and the car kangaroo hops, everything's all wrong. Now that's obviously very far away from a flow experience because everything is so new that you don't have the level of, let's call it skill acquisition to make the car operate. But then if you fast forward a few years, you've, you've, you've learned to drive, you've passed your basic test and you can go out on the road and as long as the, the, the weather conditions aren't unfavorable, you know, so it's say a nice dry day and it's sunny and bright, then you could go out on a nice winding road and you could, you could have a lovely experience driving where all of a sudden you, it's been a beautiful winding road and you've maybe had to go up and down the gears a little bit, but you've not really thought about it. It's been a very automatic experience. And before you know it, you've got to the next town and you've thought to yourself, oh my God, it's like time dilated there. I, I don't even know, I don't even remember that drive, but I just remember it felt really good. And so that kind of experience where you're so immersed in the moment that you perform very well, um, but the experience is largely automated. And it might have been that while you were driving on that winding road, you've taken in the scenery and thought, wow, oh, this is beautiful, beautiful. You know, I've never really noticed the colours in, in that little forest beside the road before. So you've, you've, you've had a heightened awareness of the experience and environment you've gone through. But the actual normal kind of sense of the journey and, and strict time has, has maybe altered or changed. So that's, that's kind of touching on what a flow experience would be in that, um, you know, I mean, it could be that time's maybe gone slower because you've been immersed in experience, or it could be that, that time's actually sort of sped up or just been lost entirely. Um, and that's, that's one of the things that people quite often come back to with it is this altered sense of perception of time, but also the heightened awareness of things around the experience. Um, so runners would maybe, um, to, to, to dip into some of the things that people have talked about in running, runners would maybe feel energised while they're doing this, and we all find that, I guess, running is a, a, um, a thing that normally, there are points when you're running where it definitely feels like it's taking your energy, it's hard work to plug in and keep going, but there's other times when it actually seems to give back, which is yeah, the runner's counterintuitive, yeah. you know? Um, so that, that would be going from a very sort of um, beginner experience to one where we've acquired a skill and it might feel like we're getting a bit of a flow experience, you know, one of those really smooth, excellent drives where you just take it all in, I think. Yeah, so, um, and I think, I think we talked about this maybe the last time that we, we called, but have you read the book, uh, The Rise of Superman? Uh, no, I've, I've still to pick that one up and get drilled okay. into it. It's, it's, it's one that um, I've been recommended to read many, many times. Okay. Well, for anybody out there who's interested in the whole flow experience or flow state, um, there's a book called The Rise of Superman, and it's a phenomenal book and explains all sorts of different types of flow and flow experiences, all to do with um, actually each chapter is like a different sport. Um, and anyway, it's, it's a really easy and fun read, and uh, anybody who's interested in flow state, very interesting book. Um, but one of the things that they talk a lot about, which... I want to I want to kind of have this conversation with you, but they talk about how the reason why a lot of the 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 sports that they study in that book in particular are extreme sports are because extreme sports more often than not more often than say um, you know mathematics or or violin or something like that, which also you can get into the flow state, but um, with extreme sports you're more often than not have the possibility of having your life on the line in the sense of there is extreme danger. And from my research and my understanding of flow is it can be where 
something is so risky that the subconscious part of the mind, so essentially you've got, you've, you've got your two parts of your mind, you've got your conscious mind and your subconscious mind. The, the conscious mind is always in control and, and it like takes over. Like it, you, can't, you can't just give up control of the conscious mind. It, it is just in control. But in, in certain scenarios where, where things are so risky or dangerous, the subconscious mind can take over and say, this is too risky. This is too life-threatening. I am now going to take over and I am going to run the show. I'm going to run the body. And when that happens, it is said that because the subconscious part of the mind is so much more powerful than the conscious part of the brain, that you do things better and you either have that, that, you know, moment where you don't remember as well, or where time kind of just isn't normal because yeah. you're not you're not living life through the normal way that you would in your in your conscious state. Is that so, so that I guess that's part of like what they call the flow state. And and I've definitely experienced that in the past. Um and and on certain, you know, waterfalls and stuff like that. And then there's the whole then there's the different version that that you've studied a lot, which is the clutch state. And and in my experience, I find I go into the clutch state a lot more with um, with something like freestyle kayaking, where you get a similar flow experience um, because you're you know you're at your best and, and life just comes easy and and the tricks comes come easy and, and you're just like I don't know things just like you know flow together really really easily, but you don't you don't have that like gap of time the same way. And I wonder if like how much of that has to do with how much of the subconscious might be taking over or is there any like science behind this? Is this just like my personal experience? Do you have any, like, like, I don't know. Does any of that make sense to you? Oh no, it does entirely. It's and it, because it's subjective experiences. We, we quite often pick up on the things that seem familiar, but here, here's an, an interesting um, uh, experiment anyone can do. So, just wait until you're walking down the street with someone. If, I mean, obviously, if, if, if you're the person performing the experiment with someone else, then you, you're going to skew it by trying to do it yourself. It's not going to work the same. But wait until you're walking down the street with someone who's unsuspecting, say, okay? Uh, not Normally, that kind of thing is ethically wrong, but in, in this case, it will be okay. So just ask them a simple, sim- simple question. You're walking down the street and ask them, what's two plus two? And, and they will automatically give you the answer. And they should do so without breaking stride. They won't even sort of get upset about it. And that's very much because they can do that while walking and, and give you an answer from the subconscious mind, which can quite happily exist there. And, and so you'll be chatting and everything will be natural. But if you ask them to multiply 257 by 31, they will stop in their tracks. Okay? Before they've even managed to give you an answer, they will stop walking because the subconscious mind will be overwhelmed by the, the conscious mind trying to go, oh, um, um, hold on. Well, if it's trying to seriously answer, they might just turn around and say, no idea. Are you crazy? Or get the calculator out or something. But you know, it's, there will be a clash between the, the two types of mind you talk about there, the, the conscious and subconscious. And that's written about at length in a book by a, a um, uh, a very well-known psychologist called Daniel Kahneman. So Ka- Daniel Kahneman and this other guy, Gary Klein, kind of had a, a whole lot of toing and froing about how the mind works. And, and, and they both really were looking at the same thing but from two different perspectives. But um, this clash between these two different ways of thinking or making decisions, if you like, is, is really quite well documented. 
and that's that's part of what's maybe going on there. So when you're paddling white water and you sort of you get yourself all psyched up and you drop a big fall or you do a really hard section of white water where there's lots of complex moves, but you have to just you know, get in the zone, as they say, for, for doing that, then in those situations, yes, you can let the subconscious mind be predominant and you maybe have the, the conscious mind just popping up or maybe not even popping up, but just offering a reminder for where you need to put in a keystroke on the lip to, you know, to boof a small drop or something to, to dodge a stock or a hydraulic. And then in the other situation where you're thinking maybe a little bit more in terms of what well, the subconscious stuff needs to happen automatically, but there's a, a pressure or a reminder on, then the cognitive mind might be having a bit more of an effect. So it's taken away from that ability to, to have the flow experience. And that's you getting more towards what is now documented as a, a clutch or a, an experience under pressure. Um, again, the definitions get a little bit more awkward there because they, they, they talk about um, an awareness of pressure. So this is where it becomes subjective again, because one person might be aware of pressure in the situation that another person maybe isn't because it's all, re- and in competition, it's all relative to how that person has been performing anyway. Um, so there, we can see how in the freestyle or the competitive freestyle situation, you might get a bit of a different experience. And I, I reckon that could be different compared between a competitive freestyle situation and, you know, just hanging out at corner wave with one of your best buds on a nice summer's evening. You know, that, that I dare say that yep. probably is a completely different experience again for you now. Yeah. Um, I reckon you probably could lose time there quite easily and, and have a full on flow experience. Yeah, I do. And, and I regularly like miss dinner or something. I get in trouble for that. But <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I guess, I guess it's tricky because it is all, you know, uh, subjective. Everybody experiences, you know, life in their own version in their own way. But yeah, I guess I, I'm just trying to figure out, you know, maybe it just is that each, each different experience, depending on the pressure that is put on each experience is going to have a different outcome of how that flow experience would, um, manifest itself. Right. So if, there's the experience where I'm like running a waterfall where maybe there's like a cave or something and it's like life or death where that's going to be a very different kind of flow state where, you know, maybe the subconscious takes over or something like that. Then you've got the experience like at a world championships, world championships or something where, you know, the competition's on the line, but your life isn't, you know, on the line. So you're still like, uh, in a, in a need to perform at your peak but it's not life or death. And then you've got the experience like a corner wave or something like that, where you're just totally out there having, you know, the greatest time ever with your friends and, and you, you just lose time as well because you're in a very different flow state. That's more like, you know, brought on maybe by enjoyment or, or passion or something different than necessarily pressure or like life threatening. Yeah, definitely. So I guess, um, there's, there's a whole lot of um, different bits of work out there that look at what underpins human skill acquisition as well. And it's important to, I think, always come back to the, you know, the, the, the analogy there, where we have the driving analogy, where when you start out, you don't know how to operate a car. So it, it, you can't possibly, well, maybe you can, but it, um, it doesn't seem that you could possibly have that flow experience when you're learning to drive a car because everything's so uh, clunky and you have to be cognitive. So you force yourself into a highly cognitive state to remember to put it into first gear and then make sure that as you 
um, let the clutch out, you put the accelerator down just a little bit, and then because because you do that, you find that balance point that feeds the um, the drive into the motor, so it keeps going. But if you don't get that right, it can start to bounce or you stall or whatever happens, and that's that that's because the skill isn't acquired. But when we then look at situations where the skill is acquired, I guess it's easier to have a a flow type experience when you're hanging out. Um, at corner wave with your pals on a nice summer's evening because you're just trying to do whatever trick's going to be fun next to the enjoyment is heightened but you're also potentially working on things in a relaxed environment where you're confident for example that you're going to be able to you know try get yourself a nice big blunt or a pan am or something and the feedback that you get from trying that just uh, the, 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 you're relaxed the pressure's off so the freedom to try something new is there as well so um those type of experiences there is no pressure on them so that's easy for you to look at um how you might or, or one of the things that, that governance you would basically the, the relationship between um the amount of challenge on one side will affect whether you have a flow experience or not and um, the amount of challenges offset against the development of the skill, if, if you like. So the balance between those two two things will help you um, maintain uh, a, a flow experience. Do you, do you find oh. with your research that you've done, do you find that it's okay? So, you know, just myself personally, I want to get into after tasting the flow experience, like I want to get into flow yeah. state, like as much as possible. And I think anybody who has been in the flow state would probably agree that you like, you just perform at your peak, right? You're just, you're better than average uh, or you're better than like your normal self. Um, So with, with the, with the work that you've done uh, and, and have you guys found like a way to tap into flow or clutch quicker or easier um, versus like, so, okay. So let's just say, is it better to, to, be in a high stress scenario that like is going to force yourself into that flow state or is it better to be in a total relaxed state that's going to like help release that flow state does does that make sense yeah we well, see that that's that's where we get into the um different strokes for different folks type thing and for some people maybe that stress as a trigger might be good but that would be a person who i suppose um would be so well practiced and maybe um, mentally tough that they thrive on that kind of that kind of trigger. Whereas for other people that, that that won't work. And this is why it becomes highly subjective. Even the routes in and out of these experiences are highly subjective. But if we were to look at a slightly different example, um, the type of anxiety or or the type of pressure also it will have a, a bearing on 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 what what response people have um, and that's where again it becomes very very personal so if people tend to like in a competitive situation so, so, some competitors don't really like to think about the fact there's lots of people watching in, in a competitive situation so they will um, have a, a, a pre-performance routine that will involve them kind of shutting out the outside world and getting themselves mentally in the zone and that, that, that's because they they need that to be able to calm their anxiety down enough to then be able to go and put in a performance which is going to try and be a a better or heightened performance regardless of the situation they're in. So they calm themselves right down. Whereas other people feed off 
will we'll feed off that um, competitive atmosphere and the fact there's a crowd and they're cheering and it's all going on. Um, and they'll use that to G themselves up. So likewise, when you look at situations that are very different between um, whether people would need to feel that sort of threat, which happens in some ex extreme sports, you know, like you say, when people are really putting themselves out there, they're somewhere really, really remote and they're going to try and take on a challenge which is threatening to life, but you need to have the highest level of skill to perform it, then those, those individuals are going to have a, a disposition towards being able to cope with that, we hope. Um, but that's not for everyone. There was, a, there was actually an interesting paper that was done by um, some people within the last 10 years. I can send you the link for it after, Nick, as well. And it's all the dark side of flow, and it does relate to big wave surfing and things like that, which we all know is a really threatening environment. Um, but like you say, when you go back to the original statement about getting a taste for it and then thinking, yeah, how can I tap into that? Well, the problem is that it becomes a bit like an addiction in that once you start looking for bigger and bigger waves to get that um, threat, if you like, that helps you then get the performance. And so then you get the feeling of that performance state. Um, feeding that cycle uh, very much becomes difficult because then you need a little bit more the next time. And so it can lead on and on and on to a situation where actually in pursuit of flow states, people are, I guess, putting themselves into situations that are um, getting to the point where if you don't rise to the challenge, then the consequences are, well, potentially massive. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it's so for me, like I've definitely, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, and I've, I have a very vivid, um, I don't even know if memory is the right word because I almost kind of like lost time and space and memory altogether. But so I ran this waterfall. I think it was maybe the first time I ran this waterfall down in Mexico um, called Twisted Pleasure. It's it's a, a cool little waterfall and and it has like kind of a bit of an S-turn coming into it. And I don't remember exactly what happened. I think I got pushed left and then corrected and like kind of went off the lip a little bit sideways. Okay. And I just like, I don't remember any of this, but I just like threw this like weird, you know, C stroke de defect stroke type thing. And like pulled my bow back down as I was falling off this 60 plus foot waterfall and had like the best landing ever and just like popped up upright. And it was just like perfect. And I remember just being like totally stoked at the bottom but then watching the video being like, I don't remember doing any of that. And I definitely was like, the line was, you know, better than I could have imagined type thing. Like, I, like almost beyond me type thing. And um, so it was, it was definitely like a, a flow state experience that I can relate to. But I, I kind of like lost track of the actual time of it. Um, but I could see how if it was like, oh, I loved that experience. I want more of that. Okay, so ne next time I'm going to run a bigger, you know, waterfall with a harder entrance. And then to do it again, I'm going to run a bigger waterfall with a harder entrance. And eventually, you know, you're going to get to a, a point where it's like, how big can you go and how hard can you go? And 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 I mean, there's the, a whole different conversation that we could go into against of like, what are the limits? What are the limits of humankind? I mean, people like with Roger Bannister, people thought, you know, his heart was going to explode if you were to break the four minute mile. So, I mean, obviously we have, you know, 
barriers to break as as a human race and and as individuals. I mean, we've we've put you know humans to space. We're talking about sending people to Mars. I mean, there are there are huge limits that people in the past have thought of like impossible that that we are now as humankind, you know, exceeding. Um, and as far as like waterfalls go, you know, right now the the limit, uh, Tyler ran what Palouse 186 or 189, 186, I think is what, what they, you know, said it was measured at. Um, yeah, maybe it's 189. I don't know. It's 180 something. Okay. It's, it's, and, it's definitely a hundred and something feet above what I would do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and so, I mean, obviously, so now we're looking, you know, like maybe it's like close to 200 to break it. Then, so say if you get that, like, where is the limit? Can you, can we go to 400? Can we go to 800? Like, I mean, eventually you would think that there's going to be a breaking point of, of how high, I mean, obviously there's a breaking point in the physical limits of like, there's only so many waterfalls. Waterfalls don't go to infinity. Um, I think, what is it? Angel Falls, I guess, is maybe the highest at 3,000 feet or something like that. But but let's just say, I mean, that limit is so far above what anybody has ever run that I, I don't think anybody's looking at running Angel Falls. But I just mean, there has to be, you know, limits or is there limits? Or do you think that we can always exceed them with enough... Um, progression do you know what i mean I, and this is kind of a different think, conversation but i, I guess it's but it, so there's there's a thing i'd like to come back to in your description of, of running the waterfall first of all which was within your um your level of skill the challenge that you set yourself obviously the outcome is is positive the outcome is good so within your level of skill you could rise to that challenge and there was a novel adaptation you had to put into your skill there that you, you barely remember. You remember a little bit about it, but you don't remember how it looked and everything. So that this novel adaptation is very much in tune with what people have during a flow experience. And part of it is due to the fact that there is enough challenge and your skill set is close enough to that, but it's still being pushed. Um, and that, that kind of keeps things on track in a way. Now, I think to think about what the limits are is is maybe the wrong question. Part of what we could look at or, or consider is, well, how often do people actually run Palouse? So, well, Tyler did it, and then Raf Ortiz um, also. It yep. was Rafa, wasn't it? Yep, yeah, yep. Also, um, And actually, I think yep. two, two other guys ran it maybe last year. So I think it's been run four I times. So, so, so now we're up to, and I did, I did see that a couple of the guys had, had stepped up, and I think they did it very quietly as well. Um, there wasn't yeah, much publicity. Wasn't... Yeah. And, and the thing is, we'll see, we're up to four, and that's four people doing the highest ever. And then I know there's been other ones and kind of, you know, let, let's talk about you've got, you go over 100 and then you go way over 100. And, and, and that's, you know, we're still looking at, you, you can probably count the number of times that you get close to that on a couple of hands at the moment. Yeah. Look at Site Z as well, you know, it's, so what is the limit? So Site Z hadn't been run on Stikin until, um, how many years ago was it? We're, we're, it's less than five years, isn't it? It's yeah. I don't remember. I think it was Benny that ran it first, right? Yeah. Uh, and I'm trying yeah, to remember what so. year that was. I mean, it was a couple of years back for sure, but but yeah. yeah, it's relatively recent. And then, but in 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 no space at all, we have then had quite a few different um, descents of it, including um, Nero Newman with the first female descent of it. And so, anyway, but but we're still in limited numbers. So as we get close to what are the limits, we see that there isn't that much progress and it's almost like if you think about a comparison being 
let's let, let, let's take you drive you drive a car or you paddle a boat as fast as you can now as you get close to limits it takes more and more fuel or more and more effort to get an, a tiny incremental gain you know so it's and that's where we are at the forefront of the sport so the limits you know, what are the limits? Well, we're, we're probably fairly close to what is feasible at this moment in time with technology and with understanding of human physiology and all these different things. Um, so we are seeing people operate at the, 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 the highest end of challenge, but um, it's not to say that the, you can't put a limit on it. It's more just to think that, well, actually, until we see people knocking off those sides of things, um, more regular, then we, we probably are witnessing what is in our lifetimes pretty close to the limits. And that's still a massively increased limit from what it was, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. It's, it's, it's definitely the forefront. But the people that we're seeing doing this are people who will be having or, or putting in the best performances possible. So, well, how do we define those performances then? And what do people go through to get them? There's, there's, there's obviously a whole lot of years of, of, skill acquisition to be robust enough to be able to handle the not just the physical threat or, or the physical demand but then also the the mental threat and this is why we come back again when we talk about limits and we talk about challenges and we talk about flow experiences and um, it's funny a lot of the stuff i've read i keep coming back to the, the this other concept of mental toughness which is very much related to what happens when people um actually have the high pressure or succeed in high pressure situations um, whether or not that's due to like a physical threat where the subconscious mind comes in or whether it's due to maybe a competitive um, challenge or perception of pressure where we might actually see people have these clutch performance states that we've talked about. So I, th I guess part of, of what we need to think about is, is not necessarily what the limits are, but it's like we do get to witness these limits of human performance. And when we think about how phenomenal some of them are um then understanding how the human mind actually allows people to have these performances is is actually um probably probably a better way of, of thinking about it rather than what the actual limit of the challenge is so how are people actually doing this which is where you know, um books like the ones we've spoken about and papers like the one ones um i've been reading about in the background is that's where these become really really important because our understanding of the human mind itself is one of the things that we are quite limited on so why is it that all these things happen well you could you could, you could take it even further and say well we don't actually understand this machine that is inside our, our heads it's, it's it's a fantastically complex piece of biological um and to call it computation is is even highly unfair we don't even understand how it works um, but certainly the basic idea that there are these two different competing types of mind, you know, very cognitive and the very subconscious, well, is, is un, undoubtedly um, a fair analogy that, that this is going on and we switch in and out these different modes of thought. And I guess that's maybe where, in looking at the performance states, um, the, the very effortless um, flow state where you know things are going well and it feeds into things going better and, 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 and there's nothing negative about it or critical about it at all in the mind um, and you have the heightened this really heightened state of, of human existence if you like or human experience then <clears throat> I think that's why people automatically look for that or try and 
or maybe see that that, that can be tagged on to their, their big challenges. But then when we look at this, um, this emergent, or I say emergent, in the sense of performance states, it is a kind of emergent study that the, the, the clutch experience. And actually, as we drill into it, we start to realize that it's existed for as long as people have existed and as long as people have competed against each other. Um, and maybe that's why it's not seen so much in the, the extreme sports in the sense of people doing bigger and bigger challenges, because that does tend to be against the environment and the environment is a different kind of threat. But once we look into the competitions, we do see that the, the, the sort of the clutch performance state has been there the whole time, and it's just people are really starting to look at it now. So it's a very different type of um, environment, if you like, that it's it's appearing in. Um, does that make sense, Nick? Yeah, yeah, no, that that makes perfect sense. Um, that's so. Have you have you noticed with your work with so? I mean, you've been studying this for I don't know how many years now, but do you find a difference working with you know athletes such as as the the GB freestyle kayak team or something like that versus working with the fire brigade that you, uh, that you work with as well. I would, Im I would imagine, and I, I could be way off, but I would imagine that the firemen or fire, fire women, whatever, um, are firefighters. That... I think would be the, the, the firefighters would be the firefighters. There we go. That's the word I was looking for. Okay. I would imagine that the firefighters would have more of that state where they're, you know, more life-threatening versus the freestyle kayakers, which would be more clutch state. Is that, have you noticed any of that in your? Yeah, do you know, and it's, it's interesting because this, this is somewhere where as, um, I guess as a scientist reading different things, um, you, you start to make connections between things that, if you look at an individual paper, don't appear connected, but actually then do. So if we come back to the mental toughness concept, that's something that I, I fundamentally believe um, firefighters do um, undoubtedly have in, in, in massive quantities in a way so <clears throat> you go into you go into any situation where you're highly trained be it sport or be it fight the fire um and all of a sudden although there are well studied um finite criteria you could put into any situation you know so numbers for temperatures that people can take and 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 i guess engineers fire engineers would look at the 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 kind of the limitations on the structure of a building and apply all that to the situation a firefighter goes into. There's absolutely no way they could come up, come back with the calculations in their head that they would need to come out with to give you an answer. But if they were to work on gut feeling or intuition to inform their decision of how a job's going, then they very much get into the same sort of place. And there's studies that have shown this, that, that, um, that say a, a top athlete doing um, a first descent or something would be getting into it and that you, you, you have a very good feeling in your gut as to whether or not your experience is going to be up to the challenge, this new challenge that you set, or, or whether or not alarm bells are really ringing and you have to maybe like take a step back out of the situation and you know effectively take a step back from fighting the fire or take a, take a, bit, a step back and portage that, that, that big rapid or whatever. So you get into a very similar kind of um, world of human existence um, or world of human decision-making um, what you might call sort of professional judgment decision making, which is, although based on intuition at the time, it's also based upon a lifetime's training and experience to get to that point. Um, and again, that's, you're right to make that connection because th those two instances of um, you know, an extreme situation where someone's 
having a first ascent or, or, or fighting a, a fire of some sort, then they do exist against a certain type of threat, whereas a competitive threat is a very different threat because that's, that's other people and points and, or race times and it's something that's not actually life-threatening. And I think it's kind of ironic that that's where people maybe create a sense of pressure that needs to overcome in a different way. Um, hmm. And it's maybe, it's maybe a good idea to sort of drop in at the moment a, a couple of ideas for why in a sports situation or that kind of performance, which is different to one where there's an, ax, an a, actual existential threat, but in a sports situation, there is no existential threat. The threat is merely to um, someone's standing in the sporting community or to someone's perception in front of a crowd or, or their own perception of what that crowd might think. And it's very much... Um, that can be very much be personal. So at that point, then we're in something that's not existential. It's it's merely down to reputational, if you like, and that, that that's where um, it's it's quite important to then put. I think a couple of good examples out there of people who have got such great reputations that you would then instantly go, yeah, I recognise that. So um, have a think about in in terms of basketball, who's the, who's the greatest of all time? Michael Jordan. There you go. See, it's the first name you come out with now. That guy wouldn't miss a shot, or would he? Well, now if you actually if, have you watched the Last Dance, then I did. It's an incredible, it, yeah. incredible so, series. If you guys haven't seen so the Last Dance, go watch it for sure. I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So in that situation, though, it's like Michael Jordan was just—he was just phenomenal at everything. He could hit shots from all over, and he had the total confidence that he was going to hit them. But he also openly says in that program about knowing when the pressure was on and knowing that he was the person that had to kind of, you know, pick up. Um, his teammates and, and, and keep them going into it. And so the mental toughness the guy showed um, was, was phenomenal. But that's a great example of that kind of clutch situation because, or potentially that sort of clutch situation, which is why I think to tag on now that definition to basketball is quite important because actually that's one of the first sports it was ever written about in. And it goes back to the, I think it was the late 50s or maybe the early 60s, I can't remember exactly, but there's a guy that played for the LA Lakers called Jerry West and he was known as Mr. Clutch. So we go back that far, it's like, you know, going back five decades or whatever um, or more <clears throat> and there you, you've got a guy who's got the name Clutch tagged on to his, um, his, his performance, his, the reputation of his performance. Um, and then you come forward sort of 20, 30 years, then you've also got a light mention in the book um, the inner game of tennis by uh, the fellow, what was it, Golly, W.T. Golly, or something, I can't remember, Golly, his name. Um, now, he's mentioned clutch lightly, but the inner game is all about, if you read about what he talks about, the massive experience, he's talking about flow state the whole way through that, but he still somehow tags it on to this, or mentions briefly this, this clutch concept that's out there. And then it's mentioned in baseball as well, many, many years ago. But it's only now that it's starting to appear in lots of other sport literature. And it's almost like a thing that's existed for a long time that's been there in some high-pressure sports, but is now getting recognized as existing in any sport-pressure situation. And I, I guess to kind of bring it full circle and sort of describe those, or the spectrum of those situations then, well, actually, everyone's talked about flow for years and years and years. Everyone's talked about seen people choke for years and years and years and no one would question that definition but actually the only real difference between um clutch and choke as situations definitionally is well one's a performance decrement under pressure and the other one's a performance increment under pressure so the other one's a, a heightened performance 
Um, and maybe within that, there is the opportunity to have a kind of heightened experience as well. Um, and that's why it sits, maybe not neatly, but somewhere in between those two worlds. Um, but I guess the big point of that is then that the choke and clutch are very much tagged onto competition, whereas flow can be everyday life. It could be competition. It could be, Lord knows where it could be, um, but it, it's definitely strange to me that we're in this world where in, in competition situations, flow is something that people have sought out, even though when, when you actually drill into it and, and look at the, the academic, which it's seen as, um, and this is an actual academic quote someone wrote about it, that it was, a rare, it was rare and elusive to see it in competitive sport. Hmm. So there's a couple of different things that you you said there that I'd love to dive into. Um, one is just simply about clutch and choke right there. So essentially they're almost, they're on the same like linear and it's just like almost a variance of your performance. You know, one's leading more towards clutch and one's leading more towards choke. Have you guys figured out, is there like any definite, you know, reason why someone leans more towards clutch versus choke is it that mental toughness is there anything that somebody's like in these situations x you know this is why people choke more often and this is why people are in clutch more often like has anybody kind of figured that out so i, I guess there's, there's a lot of work going on um that i've read from so there's, there's one guy in particular who's led a lot of work in it which is um He's an, I think he's an Irish guy, but he's he's based in Australia. Um, and I think he's been at a couple of different universities down there, but his name's Christian Swan, and he's got a whole bunch of people at different universities in the world that he's been working with as well. Um, so, but if you look for his name, then you can definitely find work that leads on through to lots of other people's. And um, they've looked at uh, the difference between like individuals' disposition towards flow and clutch states, but they've also looked at some stuff which touches on, on, on mental toughness. Um, and when you start to look into some of the underpinning concepts under mental toughness, and then you try and work out why someone might choke or, 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 or perform well, you know, have a clutch performance, then you start to see that um, confidence is a, is a big, big part. So if someone's actually feeling good on the day and they're confident in their skills, but they know there's a bit of pressure there, then they rise to it and they'll think, well, it's okay, I can do this. Even though they might be a bit cognitive about what's going on, um, they will still have that kind of confidence in their sport performance, which then means that that feeds back into the, the overall performance and they get a bit of a positive feedback loop going. And it's a clutch performance. It's all happy. Yeah, look at that. I did really well. Got my points. Made the cut. Whatever happened. Whereas alternative, if people are feeling the anxieties get a bit much, but then they, they start thinking too much about the actual skill they're trying to do. They're sort of being really cognitive about it in that way. What you can find is that reinvestment actually takes away from the performance. And then just no matter what they try and do, they try and improve their, their tennis shot, their ping pong shot or whatever. Um, then all of a sudden the performance just gets worse and worse and worse. And, and, and then they end up choking. That makes perfect sense. And, and I can relate to both of those in my own you know, life as an athlete and, and athletics. And I would say that my best hands down, hands down, no question. My best performances have always been when I'm most confident, which I would imagine. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me, but I've also had several times where I've choked. Okay. Where I, I probably should have competed better. I had, you know, the ability to compete better and I've just totally choked. And I mean, 100% it was all mental, which why I consider competing like almost like, 
you know, 90% mental. I mean, it all just depends, I guess. But anyway, um, but in those times where I have choked, it's because I wasn't, I, not only was I not necessarily feeling confident in the moment, but I was thinking about someone else's performance or I was thinking about, you know, what the judges are thinking or what the crowd is thinking. I wasn't thinking about my performance and my, you know, confidence with my ability to do those tricks or to do that ride or to do that line or whatever it might be. It's, it's the moments where I'm like thinking about other people and not, not like being aware that there's other people. Cause I, th- I think that's totally great too. Just like being aware of the surrounding, but almost there being like an anxiety of like either, you know, either having to perform or either having like, I don't know, feeling judged or just like, or just worried about like other competitors rides and their ability instead of just focusing on my own. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so it's interesting because you, you, you brought up an, an excellent point there, Nick, about um, depending who your focus is, you know, is your focus on yourself and is it about your performance and the best performance you can give on a given day? Or is it about what the crowd thinks? Is it about um, how you then compete relative to other competitors? And that kind of, there's a whole, other bunch of stuff out there about um, comparative anxiety with, with, with or looking at you're worried about competitor scores and that puts you off yours rather than thinking about what you need to do, which is, well, what is my 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 performance about today? It's about me getting the best score I can get because my goal is to place here, um, because last time maybe I've placed there or or whatever it is, or maybe maybe my goal is just that I've I've actually got this new this new combo. Or a couple of links that I've been trying to get, where I think, you know, I'm, I'm really trying to 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 get my split going one way and come out of that into points, whatever whatever it is. You know, it's like, it, if your personal goals are rooted in things that are about you and making you better, you'll probably go into it with more confidence. But if your pers- if your goals are actually more rooted in anything comparative to other competitors or um, goals that might be simply, um, you know entirely performance goals but ones that aren't rooted in the reality of the experience you have and then when you start to have a, a, a performance that doesn't really fit with that essentially big picture goal or whatever then you start thinking what's wrong and then you'll start getting think- cognitive about your individual moves which then causes performance breakdown or whatever so the importance there is like where's the goal situated um and depending on where the goal is situated will largely help determine what the experience is um, no, I was going to say that that's amazing. And I, I can 100% relate with everything that you're saying there. And it, and it really just reminds me of all of the times that I've choked, how much it's really just my fault that I'm not focusing on the right thing or that I didn't have the right goal to begin with, that I'm too worried about, you know, a placing or, or whatever, instead of just thinking about like, Hey, I don't care about anybody else here. I'm just going to focus on my ride, my trick, whatever, and, and just focus on trying to do my best performance instead of trying to do what's going to put me in first place or trying to like care even about the placings at all. Do you know what I mean? Um, there's also one more thing that you said earlier on when you were talking about the fire uh, brigade, when you were talking about your gut instinct. So, yeah. I I mean, I've definitely had several you know, experiences where I guess just over the years, I have learned to trust my gut instinct, um, usually because it's right. <laughs> um, and, and when I don't listen to it and I don't trust it, uh, I, I make mistakes and, and, uh, sometimes those are more costly than others, but is, is that gut instinct then 
is that considered like, you know, on the spectrum of the flow state or kind of, or is that something different totally? Well, it's interesting. So the, um, the gut instinct thing, I guess, what, and it's, it's funny that we call it the gut instinct because maybe that's just because when, when we do get a bit kind of nervous about things, you feel it in your pit your stomach. I don't know. And uh, I've not read anything academic to back that up. That's just being human. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting. The gut instinct is us talking about the subconscious brain, that, that very much behind the scenes decision making stuff where you're just like, but, but that's all based upon actual learning and, and, and your experience as a person. You know, whether that's to do with, um, you're know, picking moves in a ride because you know what moves go well and you've, you, you've got to know a feature for example and you think well actually that stuff that I was trying that's not going to work here so I mean, that's, that's just basically gut instinct you're going well but, that, but the, this set of moves will probably work better so, so I'll go for them and then actually if you, if you if you look at that in any other situation it's kind of like you, you've got experience that you've, you've put in over the years to learn whatever activity it is you're doing. Go back to driving analogy again, you know, it's like um, Colin McRae, legendary Scottish uh, rally driver. I mean, that guy could drag those cars about dirt tracks like nobody's business. Now, you, you try to tell me you could take someone who's been driving for a while out on a dirt road and get them to get anywhere near that. Not at all. But this guy would happily go around bends drifting at you know, 100 plus miles or whatever, whatever craziness he's doing. Um, I hope no rally drivers are listening that think, no, actually, you've got a whole wrong idea. But, but it's, it's an analogy I'm trying to make, you know, from, from, from watching um, that kind of performance uh, when I was younger. And you think that's a level of human experience that has got no time at all for cognitive decision-making. And that is very much when you're into the, the world of the flow state thing. But, but then when we think about what is the cognition that's in the clutch state, again, it's... it's, it's and this is where competitive freestyle thinks interesting. It's like... Um, you don't have the time to think about, I'm going to you know, put my paddle in the water and I'm going to feather my blade to, blade to this number of degrees so that I can initiate this thing. And then you don't have the time to think like that at all. But what, what you have the time to do is you've got the time to think, does this feel right? Yes. So I'm going to continue with it and, or, or, or no, but I'm going to make an adjustment. You don't know what the adjustment is, like you were saying about dropping off the waterfall. It's an adjustment you do automatically. But there's, so that you have to recognize there is maybe a slight level of cognition there competing with what is the subconscious gut instinct, quick decision making. Um, but that, I guess it's that balance between those two things that, that's important. If we, if we let ourselves go fully over towards the cognitive state of things, then we, we, wouldn't, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't ever actually manage to walk down the street to get the, to get the shopping, the groceries, whatever you, you, you call it in the, <laughs> whatever you call it over there Nick. we call yeah. it the message consultant but i guess it's called it's called the shopping in 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 most of the uk and, and then it'll be called called the groceries where you are i think yeah. but, you, know, you wouldn't manage to put one foot in front of the other if it wasn't for that 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 um automated decision making that you've learned through years of experience and that's that's where it gets interesting when you look at these different performance states because that kind of stuff that we take every day for granted it does exist there and taking a step back from the highly cognitive side of things, I guess there's a question out there is, well, do you think you could pull yourself away from choke and into a clutch experience? Well, from what I've read, yes, I think you could. I think you could if you manage to look at the right kind of self-critical things that you might go, this ride isn't going well, okay? 
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw that trick that I really, really love and I know that's going to make me feel good. So you do that trick and it goes okay. You think well, that makes me confident. So then you get another few tricks out. But as you get another few tricks out, then you maybe start to get back into that even more automated, less cognitive place that you might even manage to go from like a clutch experience and then transition into like a flow experience. And that, that's something that's been documented in different sports. So I think up until now, people have maybe looked at choking and thought, well, if it's, going, if it's going bad, it's only going to go worse. But actually, maybe there's hope out there. It doesn't always have to go worse. You can, you can definitely pull it back. I, I totally agree, only because I have had that exact experience in my life. And I can, I can explain it right now real quick. But when I was at, what, what World Championships was it? 2015, I think? Whatever, whatever the World Championships we had on Garburator Wave up on the Ottawa River. Um, man, it's, uh, it, it, it makes me emotional just thinking about that whole event because I, I was doing really well. It was, it was very important to me because it was at my home river. Uh, I grew up there. It was like my favorite wave in, you know, in the world. And I just really wanted to do well. And I trained super hard and, you know, was doing really well all the way through the event. I think I was winning going into finals. Okay. And, uh, and had some of my best rides, yada, yada, yada. Now that same day of finals, all like everybody from the town, whatever came to watch and everybody that I saw, I was trying to avoid people for the most part, but everybody that I saw was like, Hey Nick, you have to win it for Beachburg. You have to win it for Canada, all this stuff. And it just kept like piling this pressure on me okay and, and i'm not even like trying to there's the pressure pressure that's one of the things we're talking about yeah so the pressure just like piling on okay and then on top of that um uh so we're in we're in finals emily's in uh the women's finals right before me and so i'm watching her and, and helping you know keep her calm and relaxed and, and coach her a little bit from the sidelines they finish and then for some reason, I don't know if the water levels were changing or whatever, but they had to like, they had to change the time. So they upped the event for the men's finals, like up 20, 30 minutes. So I thought I had like 20, 30 minutes to go get like, get my gear, get relaxed, get into the proper state. Okay. And then I'm like walking back and I hear like on the megaphone or something like Nick Troutman, we need you in the eddy because we're starting finals or something like that. And I'm like, damn. Uh, so I like, I run, get my gear, I paddle down. I'm like, okay, I'm ready to go. And, um, like clearly was not like in the calm, relaxed mental state. Cause that's how I like to compete is just like in this calm, relaxed mental state. Anyway, long story short, because I was sitting in first, I got to go last. Everybody else goes before me. Dane Jackson, who's, you know, was in second place, incredible paddler. He went right before me through an incredible ride and, and I'm about to drop in and, I'm like one foot. I've, I've already peeled out from the eddy. I got the thumbs up from the judge. I peel out and I'm about to drop in, about to hit the wave. And right as I'm about to hit the wave, they announce Dane's score. 1,400 and something points. Whatever it was, it was, I don't remember if it was the highest score of the event or whatever it probably was at the time. Um, and so literally, I'm just kind of like worked up. I'm not in a great mental state to begin with. And then I hear this score and my my... This is where I, I totally, you know, fail in, in my own mental state. I think to myself, you can't beat that. And so 
like the worst thing you can ever tell yourself when you're competing, first of all. Okay, never, if anybody wants to compete, don't tell yourself you can't beat that. Um, but anyway, so I tell myself that. I like go in. I think I missed my first trick, which I've like never missed. Whatever it was, it all, it everything really quickly starts to unravel. Okay, I go for my second. There's, there's, there's comparative anxiety. There's, there's, there's all kinds of stuff there, yeah. Yeah, I go in for my second ride and... And it goes even worse. Okay. And now I'm like sitting in fifth place and I'm just like, I have fallen apart. I'm like completely fallen apart. And so much so that I have to get out of my boat and like go up into the woods and just like sit for a moment to myself and just try to like, try, like, I haven't been this deep in a hole probably in ever. Like it was just like, I had, I have never felt, um, that much like negative self-talk and, and, I don't know if it's like embarrassment or or whatever it was, but it was it was one hundred percent the opposite of clutch. Um, and and so I, <laughs> I'm 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 up in the woods just trying to t- like talk to myself and like just get back on track. And and I I literally tell myself, you know, stop trying to win because you're so far off. Like and again, this is just bad. The whole thing was bad self talk. But I'm I'm like you're so far off. Like stop trying to win. Don't even don't even kid yourself. Just try to just try to do a ride that you could like sign your name to that you could say like I did something. Do you know what I mean? Like here's something that I could at least sign my name to and like that was me. Cuz the previous, you know, performance was not something I was ready to sign my name to. And so I was able to like build I don't even know if it was confidence, but enough like umph to like go out there and just be like okay, I'm I'm done with the competition. I'm done with the ride. I'm done with competing. I've already given up on the world championships at this point. Like, screw the title that you've trained for months at. Just try to go do a performance that you could at least sign your name to. And I drop in, and I'm still not super confident, pretty shaky, probably still, like, you know, miss my first trick or whatever, but I'm slowly able to, like, one trick after another come together slowly, okay? <clears throat> and it's building that confidence. And then I remember right before... I, Somewhere in there, the buzzer, you know, went, and I, I don't even remember if I heard it or what, but I, I throw a trick, I my paddle catches, I drop my paddle, and I just keep throwing tricks. Like, no paddle, I'm like, screw the paddle, I'm just going to keep going, keep going, and, and I start getting into that flow state, and it was like that full opposite of, like, you know, I was, I was you know, deep in the hole, and then I was able to kind of, like, pull myself out, and, and I finished... And I threw like the best part of my ride, you know, well after the buzzer was done. But then, it, but then my tricks just started coming back, and that confidence started building. And I just like, and I got into that flow state for that brief moment. And I remember just like surfing off and being like, "Well, you didn't win, but at least there's something that you could sign your name to," type thing. And um, so I think that you can go from that like failed experience to that like clutch or or flow state experience, but. From my personal experience, it was very difficult and it wasn't fun. And, and, and like, I'd much rather just not go into that, you know, self negative self talk to begin with. But yeah, it's tricky. Yeah, well, I guess having lived in the experience like that, then and, and be able to recognise that you um, you'll be better set for the future as well. And that's that's one of the great things about it. Actually, realising that um, so this the, the the flow state being rare and elusive in, in competitive sport. I'll need to dig out where that quote was for you as well. And I'll give you a list after where some of these awesome. things come from. We'll throw it in the show um, notes. Yeah, totally. And uh, and then the choking thing that everyone's aware of, actually thinking that, well, the, 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 there's this place between the two, which can be a highly competitive state. Um, and, and 
I'm not going to lie. It's like a lot of a lot of the stuff I've read about the, the the clutch state as a performing state does say that it's really tiring. It's not like flowing if it's energizing. It's really tiring, um, and it is something which is it's because you're combating pressure. But this is why the people actually having a a dig around to read lots of stuff about mental toughness that exists out there. It's because different people. It's quite a broad title, mental toughness. But there's a lot of really good stuff out there that. Once you start understanding um, what it is that underpan, uh, sorry, underpins um, good mental toughness in competitors, then you can actually start to train yourself and build your habits um, to make yourself and your skills more robust for, for exactly these situations. Because let's be honest, um, very few competitors, I think, can go out there and say, I'm going to get in flow state and have a, a total top performance every single time. You know, sometimes it's hard. You know, so, so some days are harder than others, and you never know when you're going to get one of them. But being able to pick yourself up um, and use all the training you've done before to make sure that you can perform the best you can on one of those hard days is, is, is probably more important than, than just dreaming about the, the easy days. You know, yeah. It's the hard days when people actually win. Yeah, I, I read a quote the other day, actually, and uh, what was it? It was something like, uh, calm tides don't make a good sailor or something like that. And, uh, I, I totally probably butchered that quote, but, but anyway, it was something <laughs> along the lines and it really got me thinking. And I was like, that's totally true. Like it's, it's with adversity, um, where, you know, improvement comes, but Bruce, I could, I could talk with you for hours. As you could tell, we're, we're already, I think, uh, over an hour, well over an hour. And, um, so I'm, I'm going to kind of move us on to just the last part of our, our uh, show here, or else I feel like we'll just keep going for hours and hours. But uh, I've got a couple questions here that we ask all of our guests for the fire round. Um, Bruce, do you have a favorite quote that you live by? Favorite quote? Oh, do you know, I actually do have a favorite quote I live by. And this one, um, well, it's more, it's, it's more to do with not getting hung up on things. I know myself, you know, it's like we can all get emotional sometimes and I can get a little bit hung up on things. Um, but I'll tell you the story first before I get to the quote because it's a live your life by quote and it's actually from your neck of the woods. So back in, uh, I think it was 2010. So I only had one, one daughter at that point in time. I've got two now, but we, myself and Jill had one daughter and um, we hired a big RV and we popped in to visit my aunt and uncle in Hamilton, Ontario uh, and turned up this massive 28 foot long thing. And I, just, I was freaked out anyway, but my uncle dropped me off to pick it up and then we stayed there that night. And then we drove off up to head up towards Algonquin Park and everything. Anyway, but we're driving up. We got, we got out, out, out of the whole kind of uh, Toronto, Lake Ontario, coastal, metropolitan area, whatever you call it. And then as we're driving out through the country, we went into this one campsite and I hadn't twigged onto the whole drive-in, drive-out thing yet. So I was all worried about how I'm going to turn this massive RV and it's enormous. Yeah. And anyway, so we spoke to, spoke to the guy and was like, oh, I think we might just stay here tonight if that's okay. Because... I'm really kind of worried about the size of this thing. It's not what we asked for. I mean, there's only three of us, and one of them's a baby, but, you know, um, I might take it back to Toronto. And the guy said, well, where are you heading? And I was like, well, we're, we're going to Montreal, ultimately, but we're going up, you know, Algonquin, and then we'll come back down by, by the Ottawa River, and we'll go here and go there. The guy goes, well, why are you worried about going back to Toronto? Because that's a city. And then when you go to Montreal, that's a city. And he just, this is where the quote comes in. He said, don't... Don't look backwards, just go forwards. And I was like, all right, okay, cool. So <laughs> that's that's definitely one that stuck with me. 
I love that quote. Just go forwards. And it suits, it suits for all these drive-in, drive-out campsites and, and general life. So, yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. Don't look backwards, just look forwards. I'm totally going to take that and, uh, I don't know, write that up on my wall or something like that. Um, that was awesome. Do you have a, do you have a favorite book or, or even just like, whether it's on the flow state or not, but do you have a favorite book or current book that you're reading? Um, well, to be honest, I guess, um, oh, favorite book, current book that I'm reading. Oh, it's a difficult one. I mean, Cheek Sent Me High's book on flow is, is the seminal work. You know, I think it's, um, it's, it's really, really well documented but there's been I mean to be fair there's been so many books that I've read in the last couple of years last few years going going through that um, whole master's experience that I reckon I'd need to give you a list to actually do it justice um, yeah I don't think I could pick, I, I could pick one out it's it's it's, it's really hard and all but yeah um, that works. I guess if, if I was to pick an actual book about a story um, that's good probably if I look back, and it actually suits with the whole idea of mental toughness. So it's, it's a really old book from like 1959 or something, but it's um, it's about the the Ernst Shackleton's failed uh, expedition to the to to the Antarctic, where he ended up actually having to take a little tiny dinghy sailing rowing boat thing and go. I can't remember, it's like 800 miles or 1,000 miles or a massive distance across the the Southern Ocean to go from Antarctica to South Georgia with a small group of people to then get a whaling station to send people back to pick up all the guys that were stuck in the boat in the ice pack. But that one's called Endurance, which is the name of his boat as well. But that, if there's a story about, um, yeah, or a story that just, just embodies that mental toughness type of thing, uh, yeah, Endurance. I haven't read that one. I'll have to check it out for sure. No, it's a good one. It's a good one. That's amazing. Um, uh, do you have any mentors or people that you look up to, um, you know, whether it's in, whether it's in academics or athletics or just general, you know, everyday life? Um, yeah, there's quite a, quite a few people that have really, really helped in, uh, too many to actually be fair and give, give, give people credit where it's due. Um, but we're really, in, in, te- in terms of sport and, and sport coaching and the development I've had myself through the last like 10 years or, or, or more um, of getting involved with freestyle coaching and things and to keep it into that particular sport. We're really lucky in the GB freestyle setup that we have got two different phenomenally talented coaches that have stayed involved competitively, both Dennis Newton and uh, Andrew Jackson, Jacko Jackson, who, who's, um, or the pair of them, they've been instrumental in coming up with lots of different ways of looking at how, how people could coach freestyle. So definitely in terms of, 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 our sport in that way, that's, that's two people that I, I would say have done more to shape my understanding of coaching freestyle. And they're both very different coaches. You know, it's like them, they come at it from a different way, but both of them are highly influential. That's amazing. Um, if you could go back in time to any time in your life and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be? Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's difficult yeah there's several experiences that i've had where i've probably got a bit too hit up about stuff um definitely in terms of 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 coaching situations and then definitely in terms of life situations as well um but if i could tell a younger me or a less experienced me when those situations have happened just to kind of 
don't lose the rag, but take a step back and try and work out what other people are trying to do. That would be the advice. Because so often when we do make the wrong decision or you know, just get a little bit emotional upset about things, it's probably because we've invested too much of ourselves rather than taking a step back and trying to actually work out what other people intended. Um, and I can think about competitions that have been out where even when I've been coaching for maybe um, put my energy into the wrong, the, the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, that, yeah, take a step back. Try and work out what other people really intend before you, before you respond or react. Amazing. Um, Bruce, this is, uh, this has just been an amazing conversation and, and I love it. And I could, you know, the whole flow state and clutch is just amazing. If you were to leave this earth today, okay. And everything that you've done up to now is gone. All of your coaching, all of the papers that you've worked, all of the studies, everything was gone, but you were left with a pen and a paper and you could leave three truths what would your three truths be? Oh, wow. Right, that's that. I wish you'd pre-warn me of a question like that, Nick. Um, okay. So, I guess um, the three, three truths would be that, first of all, everyone is different. Okay? No, no, no two people are the same. People may be similar in some ways, but everyone is absolutely different. And because of that, you can't assume anything okay you can never assume to know what anyone else is thinking uh, and as a coach that's that, that's like a it's, you would think it's a given but so often as coaches we try to um understand individuals but unless you really 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 and even when you do know someone really really well you can't assume to know exactly what they're thinking so everyone is different and never assume that you know what people are thinking um and then I think finally, I would say there's nothing stronger uh, or, or more supportive in, in, in whatever you do than just having belief. So whether it's in terms of coaching or whether it's in terms of competing, you, know, you can't get, you, you can't, especially in terms of coaching, you can't possibly underestimate the power of belief. And if, if you believe in yourself and you can get anyone else to believe in what you're trying to do with them or what they can accomplish, then amazing things can happen. That's incredible. So everyone's different. Yep. Don't assume. And there's nothing stronger than the power of belief. I love all three yep. of those. Great. Bruce, uh, thank you so very much for joining us. This has been an absolute pleasure to get to talk with you and for you to share all your little nuggets of gold with us. Um, if there's anyone out there that wants to reach out, what would be uh, the best way for people to connect with you? Um, yeah, just, just use my email. Um, so jollifgreengiant at gmail.com. Awesome. Well, there you guys have it. Um, and my final question of the day, Bruce, uh, what is your definition of awesome? Oh, what's my definition of awesome? <laughs> um, right. That's another hard one. Like, how do you define awesome? I don't know. Somet sometimes even just getting out of bed in the morning, but anyone who knows me well knows that that doesn't happen very quickly. <laughs> but, uh, Love it. <laughs> there you have it. That's perfect. That, we, we just end it right there. That's perfect. Um, Thank you again so very much, Bruce. This has just been amazing. And um, I just, 
love talking with you about flow and feel like we could go on for hours and hours. So we might have to get you back on at some point later in the future. And uh, for anybody out there listening, thank you guys also for listening. If you guys got any value out of this, uh, which I hope you did, please share it with someone uh, that also might be interested, whether it's an athlete, uh, an academic, anybody that might also be interested in flow or that you just want to share this uh this podcast with. And if you guys want to, please check us out on Facebook and join our Facebook group for more content like this and also for a place to just continue the conversation going. So thank you again to Bruce and I'm Nick Troutman signing off, wishing you all an awesome day. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.